explain any more of that because that's all I know about that big bird I was talking about, you know. It's what you hear. Praise the Lord. Well, got to start somewhere. While you're turning your Bibles to Luke, the 19th chapter, I want to deal this morning with a subject that I feel that should be challenging. I want to reiterate the fact that when I minister, it is not to unchristianize anyone or it's not really directly pointed to anyone. I have had accusations of such things as that because what we dealt on just happened to hit on people uh, in a church that I won't mention a name I was approached by an elderly sister and she asked me why I didn't minister on the dress Pentecostal dress as she called it and uh, of course I gave her an answer but I realized that if I had ministered on that then she could have sat there smug and never been challenged because that's the way she was. But when I began to dig in around as to what the basics of salvation really was and on her particular instance begin to get into the category of gossip, she squirmed a little bit because she had not overcome as yet. So basically we are touched by the Lord and the Lord gives messages to challenge our life not to unchristianize us or drive us down but to lift us up and that's what it's all about so if I happen to get on your toes my son said when I came here did you tell them to wear their combat boots well I don't know if I did or not but if you haven't been used to that why put them on and that way it won't hurt so bad steel toed shoes and what have you but God's word can get past steel toed shoes and it can get past any armor that you might put up but I want to I want to deal this morning on insensitivity to God and I'm going to be reading from the 28th verse in a few moments but during the three years and a half of Christ's ministry and in Gethsemane and on the cross Christ entered into every suffering that was common to man he knew how man felt, and he still knows how we feel. When we hurt, he hurts. And when we're lonely, so is he. And when we're despairing, so is he. And when we suffer, he suffers right along with us. And we're glad that this is possible, aren't we? But love demanded this. Love demanded this, but... We've often got down and cried out to God concerning our feelings and have asked many times, God, don't you care? Only to find out later that God really did care. He was concerned about our feelings. He was sensitive to us and sensitive to our needs and sensitive to our character and our humanity, so to speak. But there's another side of the coin. Have you ever thought about how God feels? And ever want to enter in and suffer as he suffers? Have you ever thought about how he feels when his word is reproached and blasphemed and unheeded? And often we contribute to the suffering of Almighty God. 
You see, he came down in the form of humanity, veiled himself in human flesh to prove to humanity that he knew how they felt. Now, he is always knowing how humanity felt. He didn't have to veil himself and come down and feel it to know how uh, humanity felt. He is always knowing how they felt. But in order to solve a problem and answer a question as they look at the uh, greatness and infallibility of God, we would be prone to say, but God, you sit there in the heavens and you don't know how we feel. So he veiled himself in human flesh and came and suffered agony that you and I will never be called upon to suffer and even was more of a conqueror in that. Now, Timothy makes some statements that we ought to look at. He says, if we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. And a question that's pertinent, or a statement that's pertinent to us this morning, that if love demanded this of Jesus, then the same love demands it of us. In other words, I think what I'm trying to say is, we need to get out of the idea that God is just up there somewhere sitting up above any needs and he has no feelings at all because God is a God of feelings. When we reproach him or when we fail to recognize him or fail to hear his word and put it into practice, he stands as a God that is disappointed, never discouraged, but disappointed. And a God certainly that has expressed grief time and time again. Now we're closer to it and closer to the expression of his grief when we read it in the Bible when he was acting as our Savior as a man. And so we want to deal with that portion of it this morning, but I'd like to ask you to be challenged by the fact that God has feelings. That there's probably never a day goes by but what we have trampled upon the feelings of God and been insensitive to how he feels concerning our lives. And we live sometimes as if it matters very little. We'll just do it. And then God will forgive us. And he does. And he will as long as we go to him. But let's go deeper than that. Let's try to understand how he feels and be concerned about what we're doing to him as one that we really love. I get no pleasure out of hurting the ones that's close to me. I get no pleasure out of being belligerent to them because I love them and inside there's something that cries out. After I've done it, I'm sorry for it and I make all efforts to see that this never happens again. And friend, that's human love. But divine love that comes with the power of the Holy Ghost within our life ought to make us sensitive to the feelings of the one that we love greater than anything else in this world, our God. And ought to vow in our minds, God, I never want to make you feel that way again. I never want to hurt you again. I never want to be insensitive to your feelings again. God, I want to do my best to be able to be pleasing in your sight. There's a lot of displays of emotion by Jesus because he was human as well as divine and he did show emotions. But the greatest one, I think, is probably recorded in the 41st verse and I want to back up to the 28th verse this morning 
And uh, I want to read that to us. And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending to Jerusalem. Now you always go up to Jerusalem. If you've never been there, take my word for it, you're always going up to Jerusalem. It sets higher than any, any place. You're always going up to Jerusalem, wherever you're going from. So it doesn't mean necessarily that it's coming from the north, south, east, and west, or, or that terminology, but it just simply means you're just going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass that when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, at a mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied. Whereon yet never man set, loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. I want you to listen from here on out. And they cast their garments upon the colt. And they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he came nigh, even now, at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. He answered and said unto them, I tell you that these should hold it, that if these should hold their peace, the stones would cry out immediately. And when he was come near, he beheld the city, and he wept over it. This word wept comes from a Greek word kleo, which simply means a loud expression of grief. Now, in the terminology from the original Greek of the time when Jesus stood and wept concerning Lazarus, his friend that was dead. As the Bible says, shortest verse in the Bible said, Jesus wept. This came from the Greek word dakru, which simply means he stood there and he silently shed tears. Let's stand there at the tomb of Lazarus a little bit and watch Jesus silently shed tears and see his grief. I suppose there's many reasons and been many interpretations as to why he shed those tears, but nevertheless he was moved and he was grieved and he was showing that through human emotions and the human body that he had tears silently fell down his cheeks. But we want, don't want to dwell on that. We want to dwell upon the fact that this is a different word, translated from a different Greek word meaning a loud expression of grief. I suppose it was accompanied with tears. But there was a cry from the innermost being of this God-man called Jesus as something broke the solemnness of the hour. I want us to look at that. Here's a man that is riding 
upon a colt that had never been ridden on, followed by his disciples. And they put their clothing upon the donkey and they strewed the pathway with palms and their clothing also. And they were crying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And it was this manner that he approached the city of Jerusalem. And as he came close to that, the joy maybe that filled his heart suddenly changed as he viewed Jerusalem and uttered a loud expression of grief. Tears filled his eyes and from the uttermost being of the heart of this God-man comes a cry. Comes a cry of, of uh, what would you say, sadness. Comes a cry of disappointment. Comes a cry of looking upon a city that had missed its day as Almighty God had entered into it and had promised them the things that they had always sought fire and had come and had gone. Let's stand there just a minute and wait until the grief of Jesus passes and then let's ask Him what He's crying about. Let's ask Him why this great display of grief and human emotions Let's try to find out what broke the spell of this man when the whole town was following after him and accepted him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's follow after that just for a few minutes and say, Now, Jesus, have you calmed down a little bit? Have you got where I can talk to you? What changed your attitude? What happened in just a split second when you came on your ascent to Jerusalem and you beheld that city and listened to his words as he says to them, Surely, if thou had known this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they're hidden from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee on every side. And they shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. They shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. You see, Jesus' eyes pierced not only in what he saw, he was never fooled by what surrounded him. His eyes looked in and saw what was in the heart of man, and saw and knew what was in man. And he looked at that city and saw not the beauty that was there, and cared little for the acclaim that was there, but he saw what was going to happen to that city, because he presented himself to the Jews as their king, and they didn't even know who he was. And this broke his heart. This melted him down, as he began to cry, not for himself, but for them. And history tells us, Josephus says that Titus built a wall, that word trench is rampart, and he built a wall five miles long in ten days to keep the Jews in Jerusalem, just like Jesus said he would, and also said he plowed Jerusalem, laid it even with the ground, just like Jesus said would happen. You see, he stood there in the midst of the joy and the happiness of those that followed him and the unconcern of those that did not and saw and looked into the future and saw the insensitivity of those that were even close to him and they themselves did not even recognize it. Now this was not a pronouncement of judgment 
had made him cry out. This was concern. Just a little bit before that in chapter 13, I think it is, he gave the judgment upon them as he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets and uh, stoneth them which are sin unto you, how oft would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth her brood under her wings, and ye would not behold your house is left unto you desolate. In other words, God is not there anymore. I stood and viewed those words and I thought, God, have you spoken them only once? And is that all you will speak them? I will let be pronouncement upon perhaps my generation, or perhaps your generation, upon this house that Christ dwells in, or this tabernacle that we claim a church. Could it be that we also can miss the time of our visitation of Almighty God? You see, there has been a time when Ichabod has been written upon the door. In other words, that simply means God is not there anymore. And he said about 650 years before the final captivity of ba by Babylon, the Lord said, The Lord God of thy father sent them his messengers, rising up betimes or early, and sending because he had compassion on his people and upon his dwelling place. In other words, God Almighty felt. God Almighty was concerned. God Almighty was moved. God Almighty was stirred within his heart. And he said, you've not listened to it. And you misused the prophets. And you've done uh, a despite to those that have sent unto you. And he said, now there is no remedy. I realize we live in a day of grace and mercy. I realize God's mercy is extended. But there's going to come a time when the door will be shut and humanity will have no more plea. There will be no more cry. Six hundred years later, the cup was full again. As he looked over that beautiful city and the humanity of Christ displayed in its fullness, as he utters a loud expression of grief and cries out, If you had known this thy day, I wonder sometimes as I look at that, what splendor and far-reaching work might have been that of Jerusalem had they recognized. But now the cup of iniquity is brimming over. Jesus doesn't see the beauty that they saw. Jesus didn't see what surrounded them. But what he saw was the shapeless ruins of Jerusalem that was once proud in the city of Zion, the joy of the whole earth. He saw that lying in ruins. He saw far more than that. He saw the abuse and the suffering inflicted upon all of his children. All abuse and suffering that was inflicted on him that day, even all of it, that was put on him in the garden of Gethsemane. All of it that caused him pain when he was nailed to the cross. This never brought such an expression of grief as when he faced Jerusalem and looked at the city of God and the joy of this whole earth and it brought something from him. And I would like to extract from this word and place it before us this morning and ask us to feel as he felt as he saw a once prosperous city and a chosen people and looked and saw and knew what was going to happen to them. 
He cared. He would have done anything in this world, and He did. He suffered, He bled, He died. He would have done anything in this world to save His city. At the time of their visitation came, and He went, and they never even knew that He was around. You see, tradition, isms and schisms, ideas and opinions blinded their eyes to the one that was sent to them to rescue them. And he came and dwelt among them. And they even crucified him. And they didn't know who he was. And Jesus stood and looked. And he saw the city level to the ground. He knew the years of untold agony that their children would suffer as those infuriated Jews said, Crucify him. Kill him. And let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And 2,000 years, it has been such. You see, we need to be careful about what we say to God because He turns us over and let's happen. And He saw and looked and saw that city laid to the ground. And not only that, but He looked at the beauty of those children then and their children's children and their grandchildren on down the ordained mind. And he saw them as they suffered for no good reason of their own. He knew that they would soon cry those words, Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And he wept inside. He was broken. Inside he cared. Because this was his. He could see the gas chambers and the ovens of the Hitlers of the days that was to come. Where they simply burned alive and buried alive and mutilated and destroyed men, women, and children that was associated and even called the name of Jew upon them. And they destroyed literally millions of those people. And Jesus looked down the centuries of time to the Hitlers of our day and saw them and he wept a loud expression of grief escaped from him as he saw that friend I'm trying to portray you I've robbed of the sensitivity I've robbed of cares I've robbed of understand and a God we can hurt just as easy when we turn our back on him and walk away from his word when his pleading voice is saying come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest and we turn our back on him and say I don't believe you can do it and inside he hurts Inside he's broken because he knows as he's always known and he has the answer to every human ailment and all the ills that is upon the world. He has the answer to all of these. And even though the problems are not solved as to our liking or wanting, Jesus wants you to know that he would like to be invited to sit down by your side and ease the guilt and the stain of sin and ease the hurt and ease the loneliness and ease the sickness and disease that's prevalent in the world today. And he's hurt. He's hurt. When we come in and look upon the beauties of the table is spread and take a seat in the sanctuary and he pours out his loving kindness as if a flood from heaven and we feel it within our soul and then he offers us bread for life and water and offers us all things that's needed for humanity and we turn our back on him and walk out the door sometimes have it means very little to him I've heard it said, and I think Sister Ruby mentioned it in her Sunday school class, this hurts nobody but me. I've seen times when 
What people do really affects nobody's body but their own. But friend, there's one that it's always going to hurt. There's one that it's always going to have an effect on. And that one is our God and His name is Jesus. Whatever you do in your body, whatever you do in your life, that is contrary to His workings and His will, it's going to hurt Him as well as it hurts you later on down the road. Because He's a God that feels a loud expression of grief. And I think He cried not only for the Jews, but I think He cried for all humanity. He foreknew the slaughter of thousands of innocent people. Sometimes I saw the film called The Holocaust one time and I like to never saw it through and it came again and I didn't want to see it. Because it portrayed evil that our very minds cannot imagine. It portrayed demonic forces in action. It portrayed a people and it said, God, we don't need you. And we will not accept you. And God said, I'll just have to leave you with it. And withdrew from them. And watch innocent babes. Watch mothers that are with child taken and ripped apart with a sword. And that innocent little life in there that has never breathed. Taken from the womb of that mother and dashed to the ground at the hilarity of the soldiers that's there. Friend, that happened. And all this was so useless and so needless had they known who walked among them for three years and a half and offered them what they really needed. Young virgins taken and abused by hundreds of people and killed. Old men and women who could not help themselves flung into open pits and dirt thrown upon them while they were still alive. Then I'm talking about this people. This people at one time their ancestors had God Almighty veiled in the flesh walking in their midst and could have had anything they wanted. And here they were and still are. Look at them over there now, surrounded and hated by everybody that's, that's surrounding them. Have but one friend, and sometimes we wonder if, that's, uh, if we're their friend, and they do too. Sitting ready to be annihilated. All because Jesus said, you didn't recognize your day. All because you were insensitive to who I was and what I was. And eventually Iraq also. And then you have it surrounded there with little tiny Israel. The fourth powerful nation in the world it is. But friend, my Bible tells me that what they saw thus far is just light, like lighting a match compared to the burning of a furnace to what they're going to see at the end of time. All because they were insensitive to what was there with arms outstretched and opened it to him. No wonder he wept. No wonder there was a loud expression of grief coming from his very soul as he saw the slaughter and saw the awful, awful wrath and hatred of those that surrounded them. He wept. And he said, If thou had known at least this thy day, 
the things which belong unto thy peace. In other words, he's saying everything you ever wanted, everything you ever waited for, everything you ever prayed for has come and went, and you didn't even know it was available for you. Your eyes were closed. You were insensitive. You'd made your own priest. You'd put garments on them. And you'd prayed your own prayers. All the time I was telling you how it's going to come. And you still didn't recognize it. Two thousand years of upheaval. Unrest, uncertainty. As he says, peace could have been yours. If you would have just reached out and taken what is yours. I realize he was talking to the uh, Jews then. I realize that. And probably still is. And I'd like some way to spiritualize that for a few moments. I'd like for you to see the destitution of the world. I'd like for you to see them wallowing in their sin and despair. I'd like if you could to see in your mind a young boy and a young girl that's out of their mind on dope and standing on the tenth floor and jumping off thinking they could fly and their bodies are smashed to splinterings. And all the time, Jesus had walked the shores of this world for 2,000 years and said, you don't need drugs, you don't need alcohol, you just need me. That's all you need, it's just me. And watch them turn their back and walk away. Oblivious to what he says and what he's asking. And I'm sure inside comes a cry of, oh God, why couldn't they receive me because he saw what they was going to do. A young man came into church we were pastoring. He'd been a rough young man, a very, very violent young man, and he came in. And he was gloriously saved by the pound gun. And he'd been trying to get a hold of God before, and it seemed like it would just never last. And he received an experience. And he came for a week or two and finally the pool of the old crowd that he never separated himself from. A pool of the old thing again to pull on him and he thought one drink won't matter. Another one won't matter. I'll go to the house where I used to rejoice. I'll go to the saloon or I'll go to the tavern. I always went. I proved to them I've changed. By the time he came out of there he was shot drunk got in his car and drove two miles and turned it over and died the next day. This is a story of an individual where the outstretched arms of Jesus was there and everything he ever wanted or needed was there by the hands of God and he turned his back on him and said, I, I, I'll try it my way. I'll do it my way, but it never works our way, friend. It'll only work the ways of Jesus. I think he's standing here trying to tell us as this it's the day of salvation. This is our opportunity, young and old alike. We can pass this day and never have another opportunity to seek God. The death angel could come. But he's spoken to us today. What about us? He's sent his messengers. He has outlined his programs of what he expects out of us as individuals and out of us, out, out of us as a church. And if we're not careful, we'll be like Judah. If we're not careful, our ideas and our traditions and our idiocracies and idiosyncrasies will get in the way of God's program and He'll come and go and we won't know it because we expected Him to come our way and He had a program all His own that He wanted to work out and God will walk in His path. He won't walk in ours. I think Pentecostal churches 
And I'm Pentecostal and I believe it. And I believe in the last few years they've got the greatest fooling of any movement that I know of. When we thought that we could build a wall around the power of the Holy Ghost and the speaking in other tongues and no other denomination dare approach it. And God got sick and tired of our traditions and our formalism, formism, our coldness, and we disintegrated into just another denomination. And what we thought walled God in, He just with one single leap, leaped over that wall and went into the Baptist and the Methodist and the Catholic Church and filled with the power of His Holy Spirit and let us know He had a way of His own. And this was the way He was going to find. And there's been many... I'd have looked at it and said, it's not the Holy Ghost I received. I don't know anything about anything but one Holy Ghost. I mean, I don't think there's two of them or half a dozen of them. I realize there's a lot of things that's not God. That friend, there's a whole lot that is. That we voiced our opinion on and tried to box it up and say it's just for the Pentecostal or the Apostolics and God won't have any part of it. Amen. I'll say it again. God won't have any part of it. And many of them are still and dead and dry and steeped in their formalism and insensitive to what God wants. I mean, it's nothing to walk in to churches filled with people that just don't care what God wants for the service. They're just not concerned how He wants to move. Got it all lined out had it all programmed out and God help God if he gets in the way but God will never get in the way he'll stand there and wait for an invitation that's what he's waiting on here from us an invitation an invitation to change our thinking to change our life to make us sensitive to him and make us where we'll never want to hurt him anymore we'll always want to stand and face him and say God I really don't understand all your ways. But I'm willing to try anything you want me to try. I'm willing to receive whatever you want me to receive. And God has outlined this program. And what He expects out of us as an individual and us as a church. He's spoken by prophecies. And I'm talking about combination of churches. He's spoken by prophecies. He's spoken by tongues and interpretation and by the foolishness of preaching, just like this morning, trying to outline our lives for us, trying to get us to lay down the tradition because He's still up work walking in this world and He wants everybody to know He's been here. Everybody to know that He's been there. And you watch the churches. They still pout. They still sow the little things that have no spiritual significance at all. Things just simply smatter or clash or destroy and cause divisions. In churches it's supposed to be filled with love simply because things didn't go our way. And with all of this, He's always let us all know that we're equal to the task. But we still will not recognize God's order. If we're not careful, we won't recognize His leadership. If we're not careful, we won't recognize and give respect to that which God has ordained according to the Scriptures. We won't hear God's Word. 
while oblivious to the words of God's messenger to send. And we still say sometimes, that's just what the preacher thinks or the Sunday school teacher thinks. And I challenge you to get in God's word and see if it's what he says. And if it is, we better embrace it and love it and press it close to our heart and be obedient to it. You see, God loved us so much that he recorded every bit of this. He didn't want any of it lost. He recorded every bit of it and placed us someplace where we could read it. And he loved us so much he did that for us. And he did it because he wanted us to walk in his path. Churches are still met with divisions, envy and malice and strife and jealousy still eating away at individuals. You can't expect the Spirit of God to work in its fullness like that. I thought as I looked at that, God was dealing heavy with me upon this, and I thought, God, I really don't want to preach it. A preacher's human. He liked to preach something that would make you feel good and make you shout and make you rejoice and pat him on the back after that he's preached it and said, you preached a good message. That's human nature. And I'm just human. And I'll tell you what I would rather see. And they hear a compliment any time. I'd rather see a soul challenge with God's Word. So much so that he says, I'm going to do my best not to do the same things anymore. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to start doing better right now, not tomorrow. And I'm going to try it now. I'm going to face my weaknesses. I'm going to face my indecisions. And with the hand of God in mind, I'm going to change it. I'm not going to be insensitive to Him anymore. I'm not going to slam the door in His face anymore. I'm not going to turn my back on something He offers and says it's a gift to me and I snurl up my nose and turn my back. We told you before about when we were raised, raised as children we didn't argue what we had to eat. Our biggest problem was whether we got our share or not. You know, we didn't argue about this but, but this day and age mom can just do her best and just present one of the best meals in the world. Kids will come look at it and say, hey, what's that? I don't like that. And that's ch- that's the church world today. That's right. Amen. That's the church world today. Said and look at something God's prepared. Hours and hours of study and prayer. And we look at it and say, I don't like that. I want a piece of cake. I want some ice cream. I want something that makes me feel good. I want something that tastes good. All this chewing on this meat, I don't care about. I've got false teeth or I don't have any teeth. Or my teeth are not good. That's fine. Chew on it. You've got cavities. Keep it there. Pick it out a little bit later on. It'll be what you need. Well, we stand and look at that sometimes. I, I looked at that and I thought, God, maybe, just maybe, that you're passing by those that you've dealt with for years. I want to come down upon the oneness Pentecostal movement. Many of you don't even understand what it is, but some of us here do. And you've seen the Shekinah glory of God come down and supersede almost anything else. And God's gifts were in operation. And healings were everywhere. And people would stand in an altar, throw up their hands and receive the power of the Holy Ghost. And church houses were filled. And they were standing on the outside. That's when they knew God was visiting them. But then their programs seemed to be better to them than God. What they thought and who they wanted seemed to be better than what God wanted. And the first thing you know, God 
was on the outside like he was on the day of the sea in church and he was knocking and saying, if you'll let me in, I'll still sit with you. If you'll just open the door and invite me in, I'll still come in and sit down with you. You see, you're the one that put me out there. I didn't. And I'll still come in with you. I looked and I thought, well, I just wonder if maybe, just maybe, that we have been oblivious to the time of our visitation. Maybe sometimes God looks at us. I know I'm running over and I apologize for that. But something's stirring on the inside of me. I thought, I just wonder if God looks at us. Maybe sometimes like He did the city of Jerusalem and weeps a loud expression of grief because He cannot see the beauty that our natural eyes sees. He can't see that because something obscures that from Him. And maybe He doesn't see our life, our worship as we see it. We have to remember the Scripture says, God is not locked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also eat. I don't think that means just what we sow in the world. I think it means what we sow spiritually is what we're going to reap spiritually. If we sow in praise, we reap in praise. If we sow in prayer, we reap in prayer. If we sow with tears in our eyes, we'll reap the same way with tears of joy. But God's not mocked. What we sow in the service, what effort we put in the service. I counseled one young man this week. He was distraught and disturbed because there was problems in his church. And I thought, well, every church has problems. But he was discouraged about it. Discouraged about the fact that his minister just didn't seem like that he was putting any effort or any prayer in his message. And this is what I told him. To be 100% effective as a minister, there has to be 50% of that prayers from the saints of God and at least 50% of that from His. And if He prays His portion and the congregation don't, He will just only be 50% as to what God wants and vice versa. And I said, you have to look at the fact that He might have prayed. It might have been you and the congregation that failed to recognize you had a responsibility also. Yes, sir, God didn't call you just to come in and take a seat and listen to a message and go home. He called you to make yourself ready. And you are supposed to touch hearts of people that you come in contact with. Maybe God doesn't even see what we are right now. I think maybe that's it. I think God sees what we could be. What we could be. And I think it hurts him to know that we haven't developed our full potential. I think maybe he's proud. Like I am, I'm proud of my children for what they have obtained. But when they were growing up, I knew. I knew their potential. I knew they could do so much better. And you see, that pride just simply wasn't there because dad was looking at them and knew they could do better than that. Even though in the eyes and compared to other children, they were head and shoulders. And I knew they had more potential than that. And that's what God looks at us, not who we are, not to unchristianize us. Maybe we look good compared, uh, so to speak, in comparison to the average individual. God is not looking at us as to what we are. He's looking at the potential inside here. He isn't looking this morning at the empty pews in this church. 
He's looking at the potentiality of filling those pews. He's not looking at you the same way you look, you look at yourself. I'm doing all I can. He's not looking at that. Because he knows what you could be doing that you're not doing. Maybe we're denying the higher calling of God. And the question is, and I'm closing, I'm not done. But can we, not only is this church Bethel Tabernacle, but can we just get by by being another church? Can we just compare ourselves with ourselves or compare ourselves with the church down the street or the one across town and say, in comparison, we're doing a hundred? Can we get by with that? I dare say we can't. Because in doing this, we're denying the higher calling of God that's upon us. We're letting the challenge of God go by as He challenged us repeatedly. Try me! I hear God say that in Sunday school class. I hear Him say that in a message. I hear Him shout it out when the church is empty. Just try me and see what I'll do. Prove me. We sit back and fear grips our heart. We let the challenge of God go by repeatedly. We remain sometimes complacent in the face of God's command that says, Give and it shall be given you. Heap the press down and running over. Maybe, just maybe in closing right now, he could be just silently shedding some tears because the insensitivity of God's people toward him but maybe later, denominations have experienced this and there is coming a day when the door is going to be shut to everything but the church of Philadelphia. And he's going to have to say, thy house is left desolate. He's going to have to say, but I've done everything I could. Now, there is no remedy give and it shall be given oh sure that's talking about money but it's also talking about time yes. how often do we give the 10% of our money even supersede that then still rob God of the precious hours that he's given us in prayer, for prayer and study and witnessing stood and looked over Jerusalem in the midst of shouts and joy and them proclaiming him as king stood and burst out in tears until the whole city saw him a loud expression of grief it said if you had just known this your day and then he began to say what was going to happen to Jerusalem they died the children died the children the children and they're still dying. And will until they look up in the face of him that descended. Say, Lo, this is our God. We've waited for him. This morning, every eye closed just for a few moments while you sit here. God has spoken to some hearts this morning. What response he gets is really up to you. But we have time to pray with you while you accept Jesus. Or we have time just to pray with you until your need is answered. But I ask you to receive the challenge of God's word this morning, and it was a challenge. It was something God laid on me. It was for us this morning. Begin to look over our lives.
see where we hurt him the most and say, God, I don't want everyone to do it. How about it? He asked you to be baptized in his name, haven't you? You see, he loves you whether you have or not. He asked you to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and that was power, have you? He loves you whether you have or not. But he's offered it to you and sometimes you just turn and walk out as if to say, I really don't need that God. And he suffered agony just to give it to you. Now let us stand. As we stand, she continues to play. The altar's open. We won't deal long. But I pray this morning that some way our attitude toward God could be changed. If you won't do anything this morning, please do something before it's too late.